1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today.
2: I was a patrol supervisor that day. I was told to go to Sherry's house. Something suspicious. As you walk into the front door, there was a little foyer and there was a formal living room. I could see the judge laying in the family room. You could tell that he was dead. And so I went down the hallway and finished looking in the rest of the house. And that's where I found Miss Sherry in the back on the floor slumped up against the bed. We basically roped off the scene and uh, I went across the street and used somebody's phone. So I used their phone to call it in just to keep it off the radio.
3: Keep it off the radio? Yeah. And why is that?
2: That way we didn't have the newspaper and the, the TV folks down there right off the bat. And we had a little breathing time, you know, Judge Sherry and Margaret Sherry, they were both pillars of the community. For a while, they, they was wondering, was he the target, was she the target? Because she was actually going to run against Gerald Blessey for mayor. You had people that were jumping straight to the fact that they, they knew Gerald Blessey did. You know, he had something to do with it, strictly because of the political animosity between them. It wasn't secret that they they didn't get along.
3: I'm Jed Lipinski. This is Gone South. Episode 3. Shady, Questionable Characters.
4: In mid-September... My parents were supposed to come over to LSU to bring our dogs to the vet school there.
3: This is Leslie Miller, the youngest of Vince and Margaret Sherry's four children. At the time, she was in her junior year at LSU in Baton Rouge.
4: And we had agreed that they would come bring the dogs and then we would meet, you know, have lunch, whatever. And they never showed.
3: Leslie knew her parents' habit of missing appointments, and she was annoyed.
4: I called, left increasingly agitated messages all throughout the day. You know, where are you? I've been waiting for you. Where, you know, what happened? Why didn't you show up?
3: But no one answered the phone. So the next day, Wednesday morning, Leslie called Vince's office.
4: And I spoke with their secretary, a woman named Ann. I'm like, hey, is my dad there? They were supposed to come yesterday. They never came you know, all that's kind of a blur, but I remember a gentleman getting on the phone who my dad used to be law partners with. And he said, um, I needed to let you know that your your parents have been found. But I just remember thinking like, oh my God, they must have gotten killed in a car accident on the way over here. And, you know, no one knew how to get in touch with next to kin or whatever. And I I must have made some comment to that because then he clarified, like, no, sweetie, they were found in your house.
3: The man didn't elaborate. Or if he did, she can't remember what he said. She was in disbelief.
4: A, a, A situation where it's a murder, that's something that happens to other people. That's something that happens on the news, TV, not to your own family. Not only was it the the shock of finding out both your parents are dead, but it's the, okay, I need to get back home, but where am I supposed to go? I can't go there. I'm never going back there again. And it's a crime scene, so I'm sure I can't go there. A car accident would not have taken my home away from me. What happened to them took my home away from me and you just sort of go into autopilot. So I remember just trying to worry about the logistics of me getting back home. And at the time I was living with two roommates. They were both like, you, you can't drive yourself. So one of them drove me back to Biloxi to my best friend's house to stay with her parents.
3: Leslie was the first of her siblings to arrive in town. The others were scattered across the country, Florida, North Carolina, California. That night, she received a visit from Pete Hallett. Pete was her father's former law partner and one of her parents' best friends. Pete had discovered the bodies earlier that morning, after Vince had failed to show up for court.
4: Pete Hallett came to the house to see me because he had been the one to find them and um, just kind of you know, express his sorrow, and I'm so sorry you're going through this. And it was all very surreal.
3: Leslie was the only one of the Sherry kids to grow up in Biloxi. She'd known Pete for years.
4: He was born and raised in Biloxi. He was a very charismatic guy, nice-looking, didn't know any strangers. I kind of described him as like my dad's cooler, younger brother. Like, if my friends and I were out drinking or something that we shouldn't have been doing, he wasn't going to, you know, rat you out to mom and dad. So I remember being very glad to see Pete and hoping that he would have some information.
3: Pete may have been the closest thing the Sherry's had to family in Biloxi. And as Leslie and her siblings arrived in town, they turned to him for emotional support. Both their parents were gone, boom. And I felt sorry for them because,
2: you know, I, I felt the loss too, because Vince and Margaret, they were like, they were like our family. You know, it was like we lost members of our family as well. And I just thought that I could maybe help them get through what I considered would be a very traumatic uh, experience for them.
3: Pete had provided a statement to Biloxi police after discovering the bodies. But beyond that, he didn't have much information to share. The investigation had just begun, and he wasn't privy to the details. So Leslie drew her own conclusions.
4: I do remember thinking at the time that whatever had happened was probably more related to my mother.
3: The Sherry family had moved to Biloxi in 1970. Margaret worked as an art teacher and ran the local chapter of the United Daughters of the Confederacy before she was elected to the Biloxi City Council in 1981. The body's lone Republican, she immediately established herself as its chief antagonist.
4: She was very much a stick-to-your-guns person when it came to things that she believed in. And she was not going to bend or waver just to make things go smoothly for anybody else so if she disagreed she was going to do it very publicly
3: one of the biggest political issues in biloxi was what to do about the city's strip clubs and illegal gambling halls most residents accepted it as a deeply rooted aspect of biloxi culture margaret didn't see it that way she felt that the vice industry should be abolished entirely Her opponents in City Hall, on the other hand, advocated for legalized gambling in the form of riverboat casinos as a way to boost tax revenue and pay for much needed improvements to the city's infrastructure. But as a staunch fiscal conservative, Margaret didn't share their belief that the city needed more money, and she thought casinos would do more harm than good.
4: She was very adamant that she did not want the criminal element that comes along with casinos. Coming to our city, which I can imagine can start to be a thorn in other people's sides.
3: Leslie figured her parents' murders had something to do with her work on the city council. As Leslie was having these thoughts, her sister Lynn arrived from North Carolina, and she immediately took charge.
4: At the time, I was a month short of my 20th birthday and still in college. My sister Lynn is 15 years older than me. So Lynn took the reins on everything. She was the executor of my parents' estate, dealing with the house, any paperwork, she had to deal with that. She also, more importantly, took the reins on representing us as a family in any matters relating to the police investigation.
3: Lynn declined to speak to us on the record for this podcast, but according to Leslie, Lynn's number one suspect was the sitting mayor, Gerald Blessy. Margaret had been a thorn in Blessie's side as a city councilwoman and then run against him in 1985, two years before her death. She had lost by just 500 votes and planned to challenge him again in 1989.
4: Our family was very adamant to look into my mom's connections with the current mayor, Gerald Blessy, because my mom always had a very contentious relationship with Mayor Blessy. They were very much at odds with one another.
3: The two of them had traded blows in the press. Blessy once told a Sun-Herald reporter, Vince Sherry doesn't have the guts to run for mayor himself, so he put his wife up to it. Margaret snapped back, calling Blessie crooked as a corkscrew.
4: He hated her. She hated him back. It's been documented through minutes of just about every city council meeting for the four years that she served. So we were very adamant that, you know, he he must have been involved in this in some way, shape, or form.
3: Lynn's belief that Blessie was involved stemmed from something Margaret told her months before she died. Apparently, Margaret had been working with the FBI to investigate alleged corruption inside Blessy's administration.
4: My mother would not have discussed that with me at the time, but I learned after their deaths that she had been working with the FBI on an investigation into criminal activities on the
3: coast. What's more, many people in Biloxi seem to share the Sherry family's suspicions. Not long after Lynn arrived in town, she told Leslie a woman had approached her and said, Sugar, about 75% of people in this town believe that Gerald Blessy had your mama and daddy killed, and the other 25% are related to him. Robert Horensky, whose mother Diane worked with Margaret on the city council, was also aware of the FBI investigation.
1: Margaret was always very insistent that Gerald Blessy was doing illegal things as mayor. And she kept claiming that she had the goods on Gerald and that she had shared them with the feds and that she had enough evidence to bring Gerald down. So there was some suspicion in the community that maybe Gerald had had her killed because of that.
3: Blessey may not have liked Margaret and Vince, but he refused to be considered a suspect in their deaths. He immediately called a press conference to end the rumors.
2: The mayor of Biloxi opened a press conference to give some
3: answers among the many questions. Although Judge and Mrs. Sherry and I had robust
5: political debates, these differences were about ideas and were tough but normal political debate. I admired their dedication to public affairs and public service and they will be missed on the coastal political scene.
3: The city official who oversaw the Biloxi Police Department was a man named George Saxon, who, Blessy had appointed years earlier. Saxon declared that politics was not a motive, essentially ruling out his boss, but the conflict of interest was obvious.
1: I think that in all fairness, he would have to be considered a suspect, but you also have to remember, Gerald was the mayor and he controlled the police department you know it's sort of the golden rule the man with the gold makes the rules and so the question that i know lynn had and a lot of people in the community had is was the police department being allowed to properly investigate the murders or were they being held back some
3: Despite their private convictions, the Sherry family publicly supported the Biloxi Police Department's efforts to solve the case. In dealing with the press, Lynn acted as the family's spokesperson.
5: My parents loved Biloxi, loved the people in the city very much. And there's a lot of very wild innuendos, speculations, rumors, and so forth going around that are not only individually harmful to people, organizations, and so forth, but could completely tear the city apart, and above all else, They would want Biloxi strong and um, everybody to pull together at this, and I'm sure they'll find out who did it. The saying used to be, if you wanted to get away with murder, do it in Harrison County.
3: That's Stephen Delahousie, the former Harrison County medical examiner and Biloxi native you heard from in episode one. Delahousie knew just how inept and corrupt law enforcement in the area could be. For him, the fact that Margaret's political rival, Gerald Blessy controlled the police department, rendered the cops incapable of conducting an unbiased investigation. I just
5: thought that with her having been on the city council, with her being potentially a candidate for mayor, that it should be somebody
3: else besides Biloxi
5: Police investigating this.
3: Still, the distrust that Delahousie and the Sherry's felt toward the cops wasn't entirely fair. By 1987, Biloxi and Harrison County law enforcement had undergone a sea change. Larkin Smith, the upstanding former Gulfport police chief, had replaced former Harrison County Sheriff Leroy Hobbs after Hobbs was sentenced to 20 years in federal prison for racketeering. The police department was now run by Tommy Moffitt, Biloxi's first African-American police chief and a model cop. According to officers we spoke with, Biloxi still had its share of crooked cops when the Sherries were killed. But the main problem, they said, was that the department wasn't equipped to handle a double homicide of this magnitude. Like most small police departments in Mississippi, they lacked funding for basic resources, equipment, and training. And as investigator Bruce Donegan said, the department's sordid history made it hard to retain experienced cops.
7: Back in those days, we had a lot of good police officers, but we didn't have a good reputation. And many of the good police officers would leave and uh, go to another organization.
3: While gangland slayings and murders were a semi-regular occurrence in Biloxi in the late 60s and 70s, by the late 80s, they were almost unheard of. Here's Robert Gentz, the patrol officer who was first to the scene after the bodies were found.
2: The homicides and murders in Biloxi at that time, I mean, it was rare to even have one. So I mean, it wasn't something that happened every day.
3: Hours after the bodies were discovered, the cops found themselves completely overwhelmed. Gerald Forbes, a young patrolman at the time, said anonymous tipsters tied up the phones for days, sending the cops in a thousand directions. It
0: was so hectic answering the phone for the information that came in. I actually put a paper plate in the case file that had a pizza stain on it, because when the call came in and I started writing notes, that was what I had to write notes on.
3: Officer Bruce Donigan remembers the feeling. More and more leads, it just kept going and going.
7: We had loose ends hanging all over the place. If it were Lieutenant Colombo, he would have had a nervous breakdown with the amount of loose ends.
3: On top of it, there were no witnesses and practically no evidence at the scene, beyond the shell casings and those strange bits of foam rubber. Based on the decomposition of the bodies and the Tuesday edition of the Biloxi Sun-Herald stuffed in the mailbox, officials concluded the Sherry's had been killed late Monday night or early Tuesday morning. That meant the killer had more than a day's head start. He could have been anywhere by now. Still, the Biloxi Police Department had a job to do. Public Safety Director George Saxon launched a search for the murder weapon.
7: Basically, we know that we're looking for a 22 automatic. Uh, we can't rule out the possibility that it may have been discarded somewhere in the area.
3: Gerald Forbes had just a few years on the force, so Chief of Detectives John Williams gave him a task that suited his rank.
0: John Williams sent me dumpster diving, looking for a gun. So I started at Pops Ferry and Pass and worked my way all the way to D'Alberville, and obviously didn't find anything. I remember, in a way, I was kind of aggravated because I was supposed to be at a concert that night.
3: Which concert? Heart.
0: (laughs) The night that the bodies were discovered, I was scheduled to go to a Heart concert at Mississippi Coast Coliseum. And I didn't actually see Hart until 2004.
3: <laughs> Meanwhile, the dive team got busy searching the water hazards of the sun kissed golf course near the Sherry home.
2: As Saxon says, investigators will go to any length to solve this murder and any depth, including combing the bottom of every single pond here on the sun kissed golf course. Well, so far all we're getting is golf balls, but. You know, we, we consider the fact that if we're able to find a golf ball, then we should be able to find a gun if it's in there, or any type of
0: evidence. Um, and
3: that's what we're but, like Gerald, the dive team came up empty. That would be to the, case. the search for solid suspects was equally daunting. Cops had never seriously considered Blessie, partly because he was out of town the night police believed the Sherrys were killed. They had briefly considered Pete Hallett. He'd discovered the bodies, after all, and was among the last people to see Vince alive but the cops saw no motive. Pete was extremely close to Margaret and Vince. He was clearly distraught at the scene, and he'd cooperated fully with the investigation. Among the many things anonymous tipsters said was that Margaret and Vince had mentioned receiving threats before they died. Chief Investigator John Williams addressed the rumors at a press conference.
2: We received numerous reports from people that they had spoken to the Sherry's and that the Sherry's had mentioned to them that they had received threats. We're going to look into every one of those.
3: In speaking to cops in the media, however, Pete Hallett discounted those rumors.
2: I think if uh, Vince would have been threatened or if he would have felt threatened, then uh, I would have known about him. Not one time did he ever mention to me a, a fear or a threat being made on him. As a judge, um, anytime you decide a case, at least 50% of the people become upset. Uh, I can't possibly conceive of anybody that would, that would hate either Vince or Margaret to the extent that they would do such an irrational
3: act. And yet evidence of just such a threat quickly materialized. The day after the bodies were found, Vince's court reporter told authorities that Vince had spoken about receiving threats during a hearing in May, five months before the murders. At the time, Vince was hearing a domestic violence case in which a wife feared revenge from her husband. According to a transcript of the hearing, he told her from the bench, Would you believe, dear lady, that in the past two weeks I've had an out-of-state threat on my life and an in-city threat on my life? And I know where it's coming from, but I'll see myself in the pits of hell before I'll be afraid of these people. But Vince didn't elaborate. No names were mentioned. All law enforcement had were those few cryptic lines. This is George Saxon again.
7: We have heard that he did tell people that he had been threatened, but we could not come up with anyone who said that he gave them any name of any person that had called him or threatened him.
3: The Sherry family was convinced Margaret was the target and Vince was collateral damage. But in the wake of the threat rumors, cops suspected it was the other way around. They began scouring records of Vince's law career.
2: No motives have been established, but some clues may turn up buried deep in the cases Vince Sherry handled as a judge and a lawyer.
3: Vince had served as a JAG officer in the Air Force before opening a criminal defense practice with Pete Hallett, a job that plugged Vince into the criminal underworld. Medical examiner Stephen Delahousie remembers getting stood up by Vince one night because he was out to dinner with Carlos Marcello, boss of the New Orleans Mafia.
5: I knew that Vince and Pete had represented some shady, questionable characters. I had no idea it was to the extent that he had a personal relationship with Carlos Marcelo, one of the biggest mafia crime figures that I know.
3: At the Hallett Sherry Law Firm, Vince had worked some of the biggest drug cases in the South. His client list included members of a Colombian drug cartel, a cocaine smuggling preacher from Gulfport, and a notorious Tennessee drug trafficker known as Diamond Betsy. Combing through the Diamond Betsy case file, Bruce Donegan realized he might have something. Betsy had been given a long prison sentence after Vince had accepted a large fee and guaranteed he'd get her off. She had apparently threatened to kill him. So Bruce ran down the lead. That was uh, a
7: pretty interesting one there, but how the murders were committed didn't strike you as Diamond Betsy, because we were pretty sure we had a real hint man in this, and not not a Diamond Betsy, and uh, that lead kind of just panned itself out. There were so many red herrings out there on this case, and all these leads, and we had to run them all down.
3: By day two of the investigation, the Biloxi Police Department realized it could not do this alone. They needed help. And so a task force was formed, consisting of local, state, and federal investigators. Chief of Detectives John Williams delivered the news.
2: We need all the expertise we can get, basically, is what it is. And the FBI has offered their assistance. We've talked to them, and they are able to send these experts in these crime scenes. So we're going to utilize them the best way we can.
3: The FBI agreed to send a team of laboratory techs from Washington, D.C., as well as behavioral science experts and homicide investigators. Murder is not a federal crime, and Mayor Gerald Blessey stressed that the feds were there to lend forensic expertise, not to identify the killer.
5: They're being sent from the the Washington office, which indicates uh, the FBI certainly um, is taking this very seriously as all of us are, and we really appreciate this help from the federal government because of the serious nature of this crime.
3: Despite assistance from state and federal law enforcement, the Biloxi Police Department was still in charge. But as the case unfolded, a series of missteps would cause the Sherrys to lose faith in the police altogether. The Sherry family was relieved to know the FBI was now involved. They remained convinced that Blessy had played a role somehow.
4: I think he was never considered a serious suspect because of who he was and his position relative to the police department. He had an alibi, so they probably just ruled him out fairly quickly. But, um, you know, a lot of people have alibis... This guy's the obvious choice, and and he's in charge of the police. I mean, literally, he can bury them, he can fire them, he can ruin their retirement.
3: And so, the Sherry family was understandably outraged when the Biloxi Police Department accused a member of their own family of playing a role in the murders. The day after the bodies were found, BPD detective Otto Buddy Wills interviewed all four of the Sherry children. Leslie, her sister Lynn, and her two older brothers, Vin and Eric. While speaking with Lynn, Wills let it be known that they considered Eric a prime suspect. Lynn was floored. When she asked them why, their answer shocked her.
4: Somewhere along the lines, the police find out that my brother Eric was adopted. He's, in actuality, my biological first cousin. And... The police came up with a theory that maybe he had never been told, he found out, and maybe he was so mad about this, he did this. Which, to the family, was just ludicrous.
3: The adoption motive struck Leslie as completely absurd and offensive.
4: I don't know if that was... Misdirection, someone pointing them there on purpose, or if they were really scratching their heads, running out of places to look.
3: Leslie and her family left the police interviews feeling deflated.
4: After that interview with the police, I definitely had a lack of confidence in local law enforcement's ability to get to the bottom of this. I just remember thinking, they're so incompetent. This is like Keystone Cops, and they're not going to get this done.
3: So the Sherrys decided to take matters into their own hands. The next morning, Lynn and her brother Vin paid a visit to their parents' house. It was still roped off, so Lynn knocked on the neighbor's door.
4: If you've ever met my sister, she is like a bulldog and she is not going to let something go. And she started talking to people, and one of those people was the neighbor who commented that he had seen this car.
3: The neighbor, a young man in his 20s named Brett Robertson, was visibly nervous as he pulled Lynn inside and shut the door. He told her that around 10 p.m. on the night of the murder, he had seen a yellow Ford Fairmont sedan parked in front of the house. But Brett had declined to mention this to the cops when they canvassed the neighborhood the days the bodies were found. When Lynn asked why, His answer confirmed the Sherry family's worst fears. The car's occupant was a member of the Biloxi Police Department. Lynn told Leslie about her encounter later that day. Leslie was stunned. She refused to believe a Biloxi police officer could have actually killed her parents. But as Lynn explained, Brett Robertson seemed convinced he'd seen a cop outside the house that night. The family was forced to consider that the cops had played some kind of role.
4: It wasn't necessarily thinking that the police maybe had an active role in it, so much as thinking that the police would possibly be covering up for someone they know that has an active role in it.
3: Lynn was not about to share what the neighbor told her with the Biloxi PD. She was worried they'd bury it, maybe even come after her so she confided in a Harrison County Sheriff's deputy instead. The deputy had worked for the BPD years before, and he knew guys on the force. Based on the neighbor's description, the deputy said the cop sounded a lot like a narcotics detective named Rick Kirk. The deputy wasn't sure if Rick Kirk could have done such a thing, but he understood the gravity of the situation. So he passed the lead to a Biloxi cop he trusted, Gerald Forbes the same guy who'd gone dumpster diving for the murder weapon. Based on the neighbor's description, Gerald created a composite. And I think the first comment I got on the composite was, yep, that looks like Rick Kirk. The hair was the same length, had the glasses in the same shape. Police circulated the composite to the media, withholding the fact that it resembled one of their narcotics detectives.
1: This is a composite
4: picture of the man a neighbor reported seeing near the Sherry home the night police believe the murder occurred. He's described as a white male, about 35 years old, big build, with
7: dark hair that's thinner and shorter than this composite shows.
3: Just hours after learning that a cop may have assassinated their parents, the Sherry children gathered for the wake.
2: Vincent and Margaret Sherry are gone, but they are not forgotten. Last night, hundreds attended a memorial gathering at Riemann Funeral Home in Biloxi.
3: There, something equally disturbing happened. Sitting in the funeral home, Leslie noticed her 16-year-old niece, Kathy, weeping in her chair.
4: I don't remember exactly what she heard, but it was something to the effect of, you know, they let someone in their house, that person could be here, and, and how would any of us know it? That person could be in this room right now. And by coming to the wake, like any other mourner or friend of the family, you're going to not look suspicious at all. So it it made sense to us that 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 could be the case.
2: Inside this Catholic church on Howard Avenue in Biloxi, hundreds are gathered
3: to see The funeral took place the next day. More than 500 mourners gathered at a church in downtown Biloxi to pay their respects. Among them were Gerald Blessy and some of Margaret's other adversaries on the city council. Leslie glared at them in the pews.
4: My parents are very prominent people, so we get it that everybody and their brother is going to come out of the woodwork and express their sympathy, but we know that some of you people didn't like them at all, and you're a bunch of dang hypocrites. You know, what the hell? You, You couldn't stand them when they were alive. Why are you coming here when they're dead?
2: It is not easy for grown men to cry.
3: Today, however, it was... Pete Hallett delivered the eulogy. He spoke fondly of Vince and Margaret's relationship, noting that days before their deaths, Vince had planned to surprise his wife by learning one of her favorite songs on the piano. Pete also spoke of his abiding friendship with Vince and described Margaret as a politician of principle and unassailable integrity. But he grew angry when recounting the circumstances of their deaths. Why, he asked. Why has God decided to take Vincent and Margaret from us and allow the wild animal who committed such a heinous crime to remain in our midst, lurking in the dark, perhaps even now befriending another prospective victim so that he may get close enough to strike another deadly blow? The Sherry children were moved by Pete's speech.
4: He finished it with something to the effect of, you know, my friend, I'll see you anon meaning at another time. It was a very kind thing for him to be willing to do out of his friendship to my parents and to our family in general.
3: After the funeral, Pete and his wife Sandra joined the Sherry family as they drove to the cemetery in a limousine.
2: It was a huge, it was a huge thing. Me and Sandra were kind of like this... Looking at everything going on, they had thousands of cars, sirens going by us. Every time we passed by an intersection, law enforcement people there would would salute the, the hearse going by.
3: Leslie, too, was amazed at the size of the crowds.
4: From the church to the cemetery, which is a couple of miles down the main beach boulevard, There were people lined up on the side of the road watching the funeral procession.
3: At the cemetery, the Sherry children formed a line to say goodbye. As she approached the closed caskets, Leslie, who had yet to see her parents' bodies, was suddenly struck by the idea that this could all be some elaborate hoax.
4: I did not ever see my parents. So there was almost a feeling of... Maybe this is all some setup, some sort of elaborate scheme, some undercover thing my parents were working on that's going to play itself out and they're going to come tell us they're not really dead.
3: Watching her sister Lynn lay a rose on her mother's coffin, however, it dawned on Leslie that this was not a hoax. Her parents were dead. The thought caused her to burst into tears. A photographer for the Jackson Clarion ledger captured the moment, and the photo ran on the Sunday edition's front page. While the Sherry children were mourning, the task force was busy determining whether Biloxi narcotics detective Rick Kirk had anything to do with the murders. Gerald Forbes, who created the composite, had his doubts. I didn't believe it a bit, I thought it was funny. I said, y'all ain't gonna believe this shit. Gerald didn't believe Rick Kirk was involved because he knew Rick Kirk. And not only that, he knew Rick had a history with the Sherry's neighbor, Brett Robertson. I don't think Brett Robertson was doing a description
0: of the guy he saw. I think he was describing Rick Kirk because he knew it. Rick Kirk had arrested him before.
3: Had arrested Brett Robertson before? Yeah. Really?
0: Him and his little buddy that was over there that night were dopers.
3: Oh, really? Yes. In other words, Gerald thought the Sherry's neighbor had identified Rick Kirk in revenge for arresting him, and there may have been some truth to that. But regardless of Brett Robertson's motives, Rick Kirk was ruled out as a suspect. A retired FBI agent turned investigator for the Attorney General's office interviewed Robertson at length soon after and absolved Rick of any involvement in the murder. But while the task force didn't trust Robertson's description of the suspect, they took his description of the vehicle seriously. As cops discovered, a yellow 1981 Ford Fairmont, like the one Robertson saw, had been stolen from a Dee's Chevrolet dealership the night of the murder. They immediately launched a search for the vehicle and alerted law enforcement agencies nationwide. On September 22nd, eight days after the murder, they found it.
2: Police located the car yesterday that was stolen the night of the murder from Dee's Chevrolet that also fits the description of the one seen near the Sherry home.
3: As it happens, the car had been discovered accidentally. Earlier that day, the manager of Biloxi's View Apartments had reported the theft of a red 1978 Pontiac Firebird. When a patrolman arrived, he discovered a yellow 1981 Ford Fairmont sitting in the parking lot. Witnesses from the complex said it had been there for over a week. If that wasn't bad enough, the Golf View apartment sat just half a mile from the Sherry subdivision. Here's Gerald Forbes again.
0: You know, you hear it said quite all the time, it's half a mile from there. Well, it's half a mile if you drive the roads. If you cut across the golf course and through yards, it's not a half a mile. All, all these people are searching for it, and, and they never found it.
3: I drove from the Sherry's address to the View apartments with former patrolman Robert Gents. I was shocked by how close it was.
2: This apartment complex right here is where they found the car. Got
3: it. Wow, that's pretty close. Pretty close. And on a main road. Wow. How had the entire Biloxi Police Department managed to miss a yellow Ford Fairmont parked around the corner from the Sherry's house and on a main road, no less? But more importantly, why had it taken the Sherry family to identify the getaway car in the first place? The events of the past few days weighed on Leslie. First, the cops had refused to consider the family's top suspect, Gerald Blessy. Instead, they'd accused her brother of committing the crime. When her sister went looking for answers, she'd single-handedly obtained a description of a suspect and the getaway car, which the cops had then found a half mile away and only by accident. These investigative shortcomings convinced Leslie that the cops were either corrupt, totally inept, or some combination of the two.
4: Again, this was sort of one of those moments like where we're all sitting here scratching our heads saying, why are we investigating this ourselves? We're supposed to be the grieving family. Why aren't paid professional police able to to put these pieces together, to connect the dots? It spells either incompetence or active collusion to cover something up.
3: Biloxi crime scene investigator Robert Burris processed the car. Inside, he found the steering wheel's horn cover had been removed, as had the interior dome light meaning the light wouldn't come on when you open the door, exposing the driver's identity. The glove box and the trunk were both empty. Dusting for fingerprints revealed only a partial palm print on the hood. Whoever stole the car knew what they were doing, Burris concluded, and had probably done it before.
2: Was there anything that you found in the car at all that, that rang a bell? Nothing whatsoever right now. It's uh, virtually clean except for minute particles trace evidence, such as hairs and fibers, that I'll have to collect.
3: Safety director George Saxon later told the press that the evidence was sent to the FBI crime lab in D.C., but they found nothing that connected the vehicle to the crime scene. The Biloxi Police Department was now back to square one.
2: Some early leads in this case, like a yellow sedan allegedly spotted in the Sherry neighborhood, turned out to be dead ends. A
3: composite sketch of a possible suspect also produced no major breakthrough. But while most investigators read a loss, one FBI agent on the task force was making connections that others weren't seeing. Because, upon closer examination, the getaway car was not a dead end. It was actually a path to people he recognized as members of the Dixie Mafia.
2: The Dixie Mafia. It's a brotherhood of criminals who've done just about everything from organized drug rings to murdering elected
0: officials. We've got a corrupt, sheriff a corrupt sheriff's department too much whiskey too much
2: women too much pills
0: they're releasing murders they're not investigating murders law
2: enforcement is doing its best to eliminate the seeds of crime associated with the nightclub
0: they're taking payoffs they're hiding out dixie mafia fugitives these are some dangerous people
3: what was Kirksey's reputation in prison don't fuck with him Thank you for listening to Gone South, a creation and production of C-13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Chief Content Officer and Founding Partner of Cadence 13, along with Jed Lipinski, Tom Lipinski, and Ken Lee. Written and narrated by me, Jed Lipinski. Directed and produced by Lloyd Lockridge. Produced by Tom Lipinski. Edited by Alistair Sherman. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Production support by Ian Mont, Margot Gray, Bill Schultz, Bob Tabador, and Sean Cherry. Original music written and performed by Casey Wayne McAllister. Artwork by Kurt Courtenay. Marketing, PR, sales, and operations and business affairs by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santroen, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. a new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, Justin Alexander, an adventurer, was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive deep into our investigation and uncover the strange events surrounding Justin's disappearance— in Status Untraced. Check out this sneak preview.
7: And this last experience he had with Rawat, I didn't feel good about it. In fact, I felt it was dangerous. It sounds strange, but I just in my mother's heart, something was not okay. I felt that he was a nefarious character.
5: Status
3: Untraced is available
5: now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts